Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Society Builders, and thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. Today, we continue our exploration of the science of depolarization. We have an incredibly exciting guest today, an amazing guest. It's the great Gary Friedman. Gary is a pioneer in the mediation discipline. He's published three books. He runs Courses on Mediation for the American Bar Association. He's taught negotiation at both Harvard and Stanford. He works with international bodies like the World Intellectual Property Organization. He's co-founder of the Center for Understanding and Conflict, which has trained more than 10,000 mediators. So this is really one of the global pioneers in the mediation discipline. So Gary, welcome to Society Builders. Well, thanks for that way over flowering introduction. So I'm Gary- i myself as great. <laughs> you are great, Gary. You are great. It's, it's been amazing. You know, what I love about your story, going back to the beginnings, which I guess we can talk about, is the sense of coherence that you developed in your career. You know, you started off as a lawyer, and at some point you really weren't happy with what the legal profession was doing, and you made this transition. Back in the early 70s, before it was kind of cool, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your story. How did you transition from, from law to mediation? Well, I was living on the East Coast, practicing law with my in a family firm, my dad, my uncle's cousins. And I was in court every day for five years. And I, I was actually pretty good at it. But I, when I kind of took a step back and I took a look at what it was doing to the people, including me, I felt like there was something about this that just was not very healthy, and particularly the kind of power that I was able to use as a trial lawyer in court felt like it was something that often made things worse between people. And even when people would win, there would be this kind of feeling afterwards like that I had and that they had. It's like, what was the cost of that? It must have been hard, though, making the transition to mediation. I mean, mediation wasn't a thing back then. No, uh, there, was, there, there was no transition to be made. I was out. I quit. <laughs> I, I was on the East Coast, and I moved to the West Coast, and I was done. There was no you know, going back, and I was not interested in anything remotely connected to the law. But I was interested and had been interested for a while in what happens inside people and understanding myself and what had happened to me in that process of becoming a, a trial lawyer and doing the work that I was doing. And so I did a lot of, uh, I would say, deep soul searching and diving. And it was the 70s. You could do that. And, and, and as part of that, I realized I was done with the law, but the law wasn't done with me. Something there that was really important to me. And I couldn't just turn my back on it. But I, I didn't have any idea of what to do about that because I knew I didn't want to go back and be the kind of lawyer that I was. I met another guy, Jack Himmelstein, and together we created a, 
a partnership. And the next thing we knew, it was the 70s. We had half a million dollars from the National Institute of Mental Health to see if we could change law professors' attitudes. And in changing law professors' attitudes, the idea was this could be a way to actually have an impact on the profession, to be kinder, gentler, more, we called it humanistic. It's actually called the Project for the Study and Application of Humanistic Education in Law. A long title, but basically it was about bringing the more human aspects to the interactions in a law classroom. Second year in, the evaluators came out and they said, looks like it's pretty good. People are really moved by it. It's changing things. But what difference is this going to make? How is the practice of law going to be any different as a result of this? And we said, we don't know. <laughs> so they said, well, you better find out if you want to keep being funded. And so that's when I hung out a shingle as a kind of experiment with two ideas. One was, I wasn't ever going to do anything that didn't feel right to me again. And secondly, I was going to be open to trying new things, things I'd never tried before. And so one of those things was a couple of people came to see me. I was kind of getting known as a weird lawyer. <laughs> and they said, can you help us um, get a divorce? And I said, you know, sure, I can be on one side. The other person can negotiate for themselves. And the wife turned to me and she said, you sound like all the rest of them. Why can't you just sit in the middle, help us get through this together? We want to have a, a peaceful, friendly relationship afterwards. Why can't you do that? And I thought, you know, I got to think about that. Uh, <laughs> went home, thought about it. They came back the next week. And I said, I think you're right. I think I should be able to do that. The only problem is I have no idea how. So if you'll bear with me, we'll see if we can create this. And that's how it began. I didn't even call it mediation for about six months, but people just started knocking down my doors quite quickly because people were so thirsty and didn't have more control over the lives than they felt once they were in the legal system. They felt they were just putty in the hands of, of the system and the way it worked. And this was a very foreign idea for the legal industry at the time. I understand you had a little bit of drama there as you <laughs> yeah, tried to no, get they, this. Yeah, um, they, they, lawyers were not happy that I was doing this. The Bar Association was not happy. They started an investigation and they said, you know, uh, we think what you're doing is unethical. And I said, uh, you know, I, I invite your investigation because if you do it, I'm going to make it public because I think this is too obviously good a thing for people. And the self-interest of lawyers in the Bar Association should not be more important than what's best for people. And so, uh, please, let's make this public. I didn't hear from them again for a few years when they came back and they said, would you come and talk to us about what you're doing? What a great story, Carrie. what a great story. So over the course of these past, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 years, you've developed this very particular model of mediation, which you call, you know, the understanding-based model of mediation. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what it is and what differentiates it from other approaches? Yeah, yeah the idea of the, of the understanding-based model is we're so used to, when people are in conflict, feeling like the way conflict gets resolved is you turn up the heat and you apply the coercion, threats, wheel, whatever you can do to get people to move toward each other. And that's typically how lawyers negotiate. 
that often has a kind of blowback afterwards. Maybe people reach a deal, but there's often a kind of regret afterwards. And certainly it doesn't do a lot to help people. As a matter of fact, lawyers often would say the test of a good agreement, whether both sides are equally dissatisfied. And and so so funny, you're right. We hear that all the time. Yeah. So we thought we could do better. And if we use this other power, this underutilized power, power of understanding, and if people can really understand what they care about and what the other person cares about and the situation and use the power of that, that out of that, we might be able to find results that people feel like respond to their individual needs and what they think is important in their lives rather than what other people think should be important to them. And that that could bring a whole different quality of uh, relationship and understanding and, uh, and, and feeling about the result. The trick is, as lawyers, we often feel like, you know, it's, it's not easy to just say, okay, give away the power to the people to decide. What we often like to do is we like to tell people what to do. And people like to be told what to do. The problem with that is that it underestimates the potential wisdom that can come from people actually finding out what they really care about and finding their solution rather than somebody else's idea of what they should be doing with their lives. And so we think that comes out of understanding and working with people in a different kind of way where it's not coercive and where the people really are at the center of the process and the mediator supports them and helps guide them through. Yeah, this speaks to this whole idea in your in your model around letting parties own the conflict, empowering yes. people to solve yes. their own problems. Yeah, it's really radical, you know, because many lawyers feel like when they take on a case, it's on them. They feel the responsibility weighed very heavily on them. They have nightmares. They carry it around all the time. And so this idea really flips that on its head. And, it, and, and it, what it puts in its place is saying, what if the people who created the problem, who understand their own lives better than anybody from the outside ever could, and are going to have to live with a result. What about if we put them at the center, the process, and have them make the decisions, and we just supported that? And so that, of course, puts you know, a lot of people in the position of saying, well, then what am I supposed to do? Am I just, you know, chop liver? So, Gary, we were talking about the need to empower the parties, to give them ownership. And of course, that changes fundamentally the role of the mediator, as we've been discussing. But what is the role of the mediator in that, in that new landscape? Well, you have to bring understanding to every bit of the process and understanding people and being able to show them you understand them. There's a technique we call the loop of understanding where we reflect back to people what we understand them to be saying. And then we check it out. Did I get that right? And they say, no, you didn't get it right. And then we say, great, tell us what we missed. And then we go until they're satisfied. We've demonstrated our understanding of them to their satisfaction. Yeah, let's talk about looping. I understand that's one of the key constructs in this model, this idea, not just of getting people to listen, but the idea is you were expressing it of making sure that what people think they're hearing is actually what the other person is kind of like intending to communicate. 
Yeah, I'm so impressed with how you've done your homework here. <laughs> no, no, your work is great. You're doing amazing work, Gary. You really are. Well, uh, I'm thrilled to have you understand it so well. Yes, that's really the idea is to really not stop until the person really confirms that you've got it. And, and what this means, especially for lawyers, but other people as well, therapists, other people, the field is wide open. doesn't have to be lawyers, but the idea is we follow them rather than lead them. So that means when we follow them, that's much harder to do because actually you can't follow them. You can't loop unless you listen and you can't listen unless you turned your attention to now what's happening before you in this moment. And many times people are two steps ahead. You know, somebody comes into a lawyer's office and, and the lawyer might say in five minutes, oh, I know where this case goes. Uh, this is case number 42. And so I won't tell them that yet. I'll sit here and, you know, I'll humor them and we'll go through it. But I know, or, you know, this is, I've done this before. I've seen this case before. Reality, you haven't. You've never seen this case before. This case has never happened before in the history of the world. And these people are people that are now, they're unique. And we have to find out who they are and support them. And that means we really have to work hard to understand and realize they're not our picture of who we think they are. And, and I guess from, from what you describe, a part of that path to that quest for understanding is really getting at what the real issues are, not yes. what they appear to be at the surface, but kind of like what's really behind the surface. I think you call this going down the Y trail. Um, yes, that's right. Maybe you could yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So, you know, people fight about things that are often, you know, money and relationships and stuff like that. and if you stay at the level at which they disagree, then you're not going to resolve the conflict. So you have to go underneath the conflict. You know, Einstein said that you can't solve a problem at its own level. So you have to find out what's there, what's underneath. What is it that's really at stake for you underneath this disagreement about money? What do you really care about? What's really important to you in terms of your own life's priorities? Looking at this problem in the context of that and see if we can find that for both people. And the idea is if we can find it for both people, then when we come to a resolution, hopefully we can find a resolution that takes into account what's important to both. And that's why it won't feel like the test of good agreement is that you're equally dissatisfied. It means you can both find in the result and the money and whatever else you've decided, you can see reflected the things that you really care about in your life that make a difference for you. Amazing. If you're said than done. <laughs> well, that's why you provide the training. <laughs> right, right. I think your basic course is, is 40 hours of training. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Well, what do you do in 40 hours of training? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's very intensive. We're all together. You know, one of the things about our model of mediation, which makes it actually very different. You know, this is not the typical form of mediation that's used. The dominant mediation model is one that actually has a lot of earmarks of the traditional model. There's a lot of coercion and you get people in separate rooms and you caucus with them. And then the idea is, you know, you get each of them to move until you've made a deal, but it's you that's made the deal rather than they. So this is really different. It's harder. 
everybody works harder. The mediator works harder. The parties work harder. The lawyers, if they are part of participating, they're supportive, but they work harder than they would if they were uh, in, in a more traditional form. So it, it really is a, a very different kind of stance that we all have to find ourselves as uh, collaborative problem solvers, supporting the parties to be in the center of it all. Yeah, so let's do a case study. I've read in, you know, Amanda Ripley's book, High Conflict, I read this story of your interaction with the symphony. So maybe we oh, can yeah. use the symphony orchestra example yeah. of how, how this all works. Maybe you can tell us that story. Yeah, well, the story of the symphony is, you know, they, they were, they're a fabulous symphony, but they've had terrible problems around our struggles, around money, and a number of other things as well. And, and so they had gone on strike. And when they called us in, they, they were about to have to negotiate a new contract. And they realized, both sides realized, if they did not negotiate a new contract and they went on strike, it would probably be the end of the symphony. So there wow. was a lot at stake for them. And, and so what we did was we actually took the players and we worked with the players and we worked with the board and we worked with management. And we taught them the skills by having them do simulations that didn't have anything to do with symphonies, other kinds of labor uh, situations. And so they learned the skills of looping, going underneath the problem, thinking, brainstorming, all kinds, a whole different way of thinking about conflict. And by the time we finished the training of all of them, the actual mediation itself was a piece of cake because they really understood how to do it. I mean, one of the goals I have as a mediator is to put myself out of business. So if people really have learned how to work together, when future problems come up, they'll be able to do it themselves. That's the, the fond hope. That's fantastic, Gary. What, what, a, what a noble ideal there. That's, that's just brilliant. Well, it, it, it certainly beats war. <laughs> <laughs> and that model impacts the way people think. And it takes so much out of us. And of course, we're at a point in the planet's evolution where we see the price paid every day, higher and higher in more and more dangerous world we live in. And the stakes are so high that if we continue to use that model of coercion and us against them and right and wrong as the total framework for everything, it's going to be really hard for us to pull together to be able to save this planet. You know, in the Baha'i advocacy that's kind of currently taking shape, one of the big ideas that is coming through is this idea that to get antagonistic groups closer together, you find a greater purpose that they can agree on and, and collaborate together around. Do you have any thoughts on, on how that might work or how that works in the context of what you've been doing? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's actually a book I'm writing now. Fantastic. How regular people can use this because this does not have to be, you know, highly sophisticated, well-trained people that there it, is there are kind of basic human principles. One of the problems, and we had this with the symphony, is we had groups, and within the groups you know, where people see things similarly, they also see things differently. So there can be conflict within a group, and so that's a problem. For example, with the with the symphony, there were a number of people that were the stringed instruments. They were suffering repetitive injuries, and that's because so much of the repertoire 
was relying on the stringed instruments. So they wanted what we called string relief. And so, of course, they weren't the dominant part of the group. So the group wasn't about to get behind that in the previous negotiation. And of course, in the previous negotiation, the reason that it had failed is that the players came to the table, the representatives of the, ta- of the players with management and the management said, what are your issues? And they had 36 issues. And they said, what's the order of priority? The order of priority is they're all the same. They're all of the highest priority. The fifth That doomed it right there. So what we had to do is work with the players for them to identify what are the priorities and string relief became one of the things that other people in the orchestra realized it was a good thing for them to support, even though it wasn't going to affect them directly. So by the time that we got through that, there were really four big issues. And so it was going to be much easier to solve four issues than 36. Fantastic. In Amanda's book, again, one of the things that's very colorful is your own story with your engagement with running for office for the local council. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I love about the story is again, that idea of coherence, how hard it is for us to, to, to practice what we believe, if you will. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that story, you know, what, what happened and and what did it teach you? Yeah. I mean. I, I love it that, you know, I was really worried about this story going public because um, <laughs> it was a colossal failure on my part. And so I realized so many people were, you know, so appreciative of what I'd done and what my talents were as a mediator that they didn't see me uh, as a human being. And, and so this story helped me land on earth where I belong. And so it was a very hard fall because I got very excited about, we had problems in the community. People said, you know, we need somebody to run the meetings. I said, I know how to run meetings where there's conflict and they, and great. So they elected me in a landslide. And then this was to the local, to the local council, just our local 250 houses (laughs) right on on the ocean on California. And my idea was let's get the whole community involved. And so all the people that voted for me come to the meetings. It's your community. And of course, one of the great surprises, two surprises, uh, neither of them which should have been, one was they didn't come because they thought they'd elected me. I would do that. And secondly, the people that were against me, they came to every meeting <laughs> and they just started taking pot shots at me right off the bat. Well, as a mediator, I was used to really heavy conflict, horrible things would happen in the room, but it was never aimed at me. And this was, this was aimed at me. And as the me, what came back into my life was the old trial lawyer. I knew how to defend and attack. And before I knew it, I was off and running and everything I believed in about how people should be with each other. I was contradicting from, uh, you know, moment to moment. And it was a um, terrible experience because I was defensive and I got, I got kind of, I wouldn't say drunk with power, but kind of, I loved the idea of having power. I kind of hadn't had it. It's a mediator. I give it away. So I'm happy. But this was kind of intoxicating. We we can make real change. And of course that was, you know, seeds of destruction right there and created a we them relationship between me and the people that were against me. And so I went through a, a really horrible period 
where my wife said to me, she'd come to the meetings with the dog <laughs> and, and then leave after a while. And at one point she said to me, you know, I don't even recognize you. This is not the person that I've been with for the last 40 some odd years. This is some old version of you. And so I really took that to heart because I knew that she was right. And she always is right. <laughs> and so I went through a period of deep soul searching. I've had a meditation practice decades. I thought this will help me. And so, you know, but I would just sit there in suffering and not be able to get to the bottom of it and living with this day and night. And of course, I wasn't getting paid a penny to do any of this. So it was like, why am I ruining my life this way? And people in the community would look the other way when I passed them on the street. These are my, my neighbors. <laughs> so what could be worse, you know? And so I realized I had to do something about that. And when I got to the bottom of it, I realized I had just gotten caught up in all the stuff I help other people unhook from. And I needed to do something to change that. And so over time, I did. But first it's I had to confess what had happened and it was really hurtful to me. Um, and I had to feel my vulnerability. I, I love the story because it, it brings out the, the challenge. Um, none of this is, is easy and, and it, it, yeah. it, it's clearest when you see the contradictions in, in our own actions often, you know, as we're, yeah, we're trying and mediators to. Were, mediators that I trained were very upset when this story came out. I said, what, how could you do this? You know, we <laughs> have, have these conferences that they've invited me and say, well, let's talk about your failure. I'm talking about it. And they said, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And I said, I, said, I should have, I could have, I would have. I didn't. And so I'm just like you. I'm no better than you. What do you think this tells us? I mean, your story and everything else that you've been talking about, about kind of like the qualities and the challenge for the, the, the mediator in this, in this process. Yeah. The challenge is we often think we know better what people should do with their lives than they do. And people ask us what to do because they want us to tell them what to do. Although they may really not, they maybe they do because then we'll, they'll be able to blame us when things go wrong. We like to tell people what to do because we then, then we think we're doing something valuable. And so that whole thing has got to flip. And that's really the challenge is to really believe at the deepest level. And it's a wisdom, which is, I don't know. There's a, a Buddhist saying, which is not knowing is most intimate. And, and so not knowing and greeting the world with the stance of, I don't know how I can help you. I know I really want to, but I need you to be able to help me help you. That's, that's the biggest challenge. Can we do that? Can we live that? And the more successful we are, the more important it is that we realize how little we really know. And I'm almost 80 now, and I realize I know a lot less than I knew 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a certain demand for humility, would you say? Exactly. That's, that is the quality, I think. That's the most essential quality for anybody considering. I mean, just think about this. Human beings with, you know, these really dark, heavy conflicts. Who do we think we are that we, you know, know how to, 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 to really help them? I mean, it really takes an incredible uh, amount of, of, of guts 
but also a kind of hubris that I think we have to realize. We don't know, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to do. There's lots we can do, lots we can do. And that's, that's the stuff that really people need to learn. I think the challenge as you're articulating this is that the type of person who is drawn to doing this has probably a little bit of a savior complex and the, <laughs> you know, they, they want yeah. to help people and it feels good. It feels good helping people, right? I mean, that's yes. a large part of what, what people find fulfilling. And right. so in that quest to be the person who's helping, it's hard yeah. to find that humility of, of letting people own the problem themselves. Well, I, I have this conversation regularly with my wife, who's a great helper. And I accuse her of like helping the little old lady cross the street, only the lady didn't want to cross the street. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to give you the help I think you need. It's, it's easy to just kind of guess what that is. But when we guess, we're often wrong because we really don't know and, and, and not realizing how much we depend on people to be able to kind of find their own truth. And that's harder. We have to live with their confusion, their pain, how they change their minds, how indecisive they are, how confused they are, how much suffering they experience. And our job is to be there with them in their suffering and to, to accompany them. That's what compassion really is. It's mm, that's beautiful, uh, this, this principle of accompaniment. Yeah, and it means we're in a horizontal relationship, not a vertical relationship. And beautiful. it's the horizontal relationship we have to realize we're in the soup, we're trying to help. That's fantastic. So, you know, as we've discussed briefly, Gary, Baha'i communities all over the world will be working over the course of the next 25 years, trying to bring antagonistic groups together. Yeah. What advice would you have? This is grassroots, very, very, very grassroots not lawyers, yes. you know, not mediating professionals per se, grassroots community organizations. What advice would you have for Baha'i communities worldwide in terms of how to best work to bring antagonistic groups closer together? You mean for me to tell them what to do? <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Right, right. So I wouldn't presume to tell them what to do, but I can suggest that there are a number of things that I think would be useful. I think the first thing is to realize that when you're trying to help people, to think you're doing it for altruistic reasons is self-deception. There has to be something in it for you if you want to be able to help other people that otherwise you'll burn out and you'll be very dissatisfied. So that's first. And I think when you realize that it really is, you know, something in you you're doing this for, it's often we all have ways in which, you know, we've been hurt and we, we've suffered. And in fact, where the juice comes from to help people is that stuff that's, that's been hanging around, you know, for 10, 20, 40, 60 years in us that we're trying to heal. And so feeling that helps us be in relationship to the people and realizing that every time we help somebody with their own wound, it's a little bit a healing of our own wounds. And so we have this very intimate relationship with what they're going through and it's corollary in what we're going through. It's not like we talk about these things with people, but we need to feel that. We need to really get our motivations and our motivations 
their motivations to want to do this, and they're really important. And they're also motivations to not want to do this. And those are also really important. And we have to listen to the motivations to not do this. I mean, there are a lot of good ones. And so you have to decide, is this the right time? Are these the right people? Am I in the right place in my life to want to be doing this with other people? And if there's more reasons to do it than reasons not to do it, then we can begin. But that's, that's the whole thing. And are the people that we're working with, do they have motivations to do this? And, and I think every one of us deep inside has that. We may not be conscious of that, but it's there and it's there to be tapped. And so oftentimes I'll think in the face of impossibility, what's the possibility? And can we feed that little possibility and have that grow into something that's bigger and, and work from that place of more and more possibility until it, it grows and it, and it matures and, and becomes something people can really work from. Groups have their own life. And one of the things, I just heard this, on, and I'm just still noodling about this. This is really an important idea. I, it's either a really dumb idea or it's an important idea. People say it's about finding people like you that really is important to people. And, and of course, if that's true and the world depends on us only being with people that are like us, it's going to be very hard for us to pull anything off in terms of transformation. But there's this other way of looking at it, which is, do people like you? And is there ways in which we can like people and be liked by people that are really people that we disagree with? And, you know, my son is a filmmaker and he's just done filming of this really remarkable conference in Texas where billionaires are there who are very much very conservative, but they really believe in in uh, that the, we need to do something about climate change. And, and they feel dismissed when people say, you know, I don't believe you. They got, they put them in that box. And so we have to find ways of not holding people to the pictures that we have of them, especially politically. And the media feeds all this. And so it makes it really, really hard to not just turn everything into good and bad and right and wrong. And this is how it is and oversimplify. So we have to really enter into the complexity of a problem and feel it and live with the complexity of it and understand that and go for that and realize that from that, we can create understanding if we're not caught in the pictures that we, that we, we carry around of people just by the way they look or something they've said or some political stance that they've taken. And, you know, that's a lot more work. And it, it means we have to, I don't know, I don't know what we have to do about media, but we have to not let ourselves get sucked in to the pictures that we're fed and bombarded with every day about this is right, this is wrong, this is what's happening, and, 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 and resisting that. So, so can a group support each other to do that? Yes. And one of the things, the group, if you're talking about, I don't know, your, your, your healing group, if you have a healing group that wants to work together, we have a thing in, in my last book called Inside Out, how conflict professionals can use self-reflection to help others. We have what we call a buddy system. And this is really the key because what's happening inside us is really important for us to be able to recognize and how that impacts how we work with people on the outside. 
So understanding how we work with people on the inside uh, is challenging because everything reinforces just look at the outside. And so looking at the inside and working with that, learning to work with that, what we have is we call a buddy system. So if you have, I don't know how many people you're talking about, 1,000, 100, 50, you can still have people go into pairs and teach them how to have what we call buddy conversations where they learn the skills of looping and they also learn the skills of speaking from their hearts about what's happening inside them. And they support each other to do that, to deepen their understanding of themselves and what they're going through and sustaining that. And that's the key is, can you sustain this over long enough a period of time to make a difference? It's easy to just kind of get excited by the beginnings. What's hard is hanging in there for when it gets tough and they hang it in there for when it gets tough. That's when you need the buddies. Also, it's important to have, I think, a self-reflection practice. So we have in the self-reflection book, the Inside Out book, nine different practices that we suggest people follow to be able to strengthen the muscle of uh, self-reflection and be able to use it in action. It's not like you just do that. I remember my father was so unhappy with me when I left practicing law with him. He came out, visited me, and I took him to the local Zen center. And he said, what are these people just doing sitting on pillows? Don't they know that, you know, the world is burning? And he just didn't see that there could be any value. And and then when I was asked, and he thought the mediation I was doing, he said, you know, that's all bullshit. And real lawyers are trial lawyers. So we loved each other, my father and I. So he was 80 at the time. And I said, you know, I, I've been invited by Harvard to teach. And he said, why would Harvard ask you to come teach? So he came to a program, a five-day, 40-hour program at Harvard, fell asleep some of the time, went through it. And but the end, he said, yeah, I'm a mediator now. Of course he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that, it, it's a finding a way to have, you know, love enter our hearts and, and connect us no matter what our ideological or beliefs be. You, you talked earlier about motivation. Of course, you know, if you're going to empower people to solve their own problems, so to speak, you kind of need a certain motivation to be at the table for that to happen. Exactly. But what do you do if you have a party that, that doesn't have that motivation? It's a non-starter. You wait. Maybe yeah. things have to get worse. But the question is, do they have it? I mean, I think almost everybody has it. and It's often buried. They may not be aware of it. But giving them the choice is really important. And to be able to say, if you do not want to do this, I will support you to say no. Because unless people have a no, they don't have a yes. So if, if it's really a no, then you're dragging them along in a process. And that's way too hard to do. And, and, it, and it's kind of a violation of them. I mean, it's first principle, respect the party's autonomy and their right to make their own decisions. And if they're saying, no, I'm not going to do this. Then we say, I'm here for you if you ever reach the point where you, you want to. And then you're working with people who have intention. And, and that's you know, the present expression of motivation. But you know, sometimes the motivation is the alternative is even worse. So this is kind of horrible to think about dealing with this person. But when I see the alternative, 
wow, that looks like it's really bad. So maybe that's all we have. But that's enough to start. And then can we develop it as we work together? You, you spoke earlier about this idea of being in the face of impossibility. What happens when you reach that point? You're in this mediation, you're working, you know, and, and you look at something and it just feels impossible. How, how do you find the possible at that moment? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is you have to open your heart to the people. And so when you open your heart and you feel like there is a beating human heart that they have, and that their aspirations they have as humans, and they seem to be buried now, they seem to be not accessible, and it seems to be impossible. We know that all it takes is for them to want to change that, to be able to make some headway with changing that. So I always feel that possibility. And as long as I hold out that possibility and invite them to find that in themselves, I've always got something to work with. So I never kick anybody out of mediation. I mean, if, if there's violence, that's it. Or if they're, you know, drunk or, you know, drunk out or something, you know, but assuming that they're in more or less right minds, if they're there, I assume that, that they're there. And, you know, if they've come to a meeting and that looks like it's impossible, you have to remember they've come to the meeting. There was some reason that they came to the meeting. Now, maybe it was because they thought in the presence of a neutral, they could bash the other person and get their way and all of that. But there might be something else there too. And we're always looking for that. And when it works, it's beautiful. And when it doesn't work, sometimes that can be beautiful too, to be able to say, you know, for one person to be able to say to the other, you know, you have really done damage to me. And I do not want to work with you. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. So no, I don't want to work this out. And, and I consider that a success because it's a step forward for them in terms of their own lives. Now, Gary, your, your Center for Understanding and Conflict provides training, uh, yes. a, a number of different courses. Is that something that's limited to lawyers or is it for oh, all no. people of all walks? No, it started with lawyers. We used to be the Center for Mediation and Law. We changed it for the Center for Understanding and Conflict because we started to see what we were really teaching was a different way of relating to conflict. So it's for anybody who feels like they want to develop skills to work with people in conflict. And it's become much broader. And we're now interested in, in this book I'm writing. I'm, I'm interested in kind of putting together the steps for people, even without a mediator, to be able to kind of follow that, that they can go through conflict with somebody else or have discussions where they really diverge. So, you know, we're, we're doing and we're, we're training teachers. So how would listeners go about signing up for a course, for example, if they're interested. Oh, they just go on our website, understandinginconflict, all one word, dot org. Understandinginconflict.org, all one word. Fantastic. So Gary, tell us a little bit more about this new book that you're working on. It sounds really yeah. exciting. Yeah, well, it's, the idea is exciting. I'm still in the throes. I'm actually looking for situations where people who are in conflict are willing 
have me coach one of the people and then they will talk to the other person, record that, and then bring it back to me. And I want to use those because, you know, books are only juicy if they've got examples. And so these are not mediations, but it's really about the steps that you can take. Anybody can take with anybody, whether it's your in-laws or your neighbors or your friends or people that, you know, you're warring with the, that the, the process is different because of the content, but it's the same in terms of these steps. And what, what I'm looking for is something that's not going to be just like a formula, but that's genuine that you can do with other people who are actually interested in doing that with you. How does it differ? Uh, I, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of it is similar to what you've done so far. How yeah. does making it in this kind of like more self-help mode, how, how does it differ from what you've been doing in your mediation training? Well, in the mediation training, we're teaching people to be mediators. In this, it's many of the same tools, but it's about doing it without a mediator. And in the book, I'm going to be kind of a coach. So I will listen to what they've done and carry it out, and then they'll bring it back, and then I'll coach them. And hopefully we'll come out of that as some stuff that people will find useful. And I'm really uh, kind of... Uh, and a little bit of a quandary, but kind of excited to try to solve this problem because so many of these kind of self-help books rely on the author's reporting of the story. You know, I had this great success. You know, I've done that myself in my books and or failure, whatever it was, but it's our reporting of it. So this will hopefully get more real because we'll have recorded the conversation that people had without me. And then we'll be able to kind of analyze that and figure out, well, where do they go from here? So I'm hoping that it will give people some guideposts that they find. Well, we can't wait. We'll have to get you back on the show once you come out with the book to, to tell yes. us the story. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Hope it will happen before I'm dead. <laughs> um, so I'm working at a snail's pace, but feels like I'm making progress. Gary, you're a legend. Thank you so much for taking time to share with us today. So many great insights, really. You know, keep up the good work. Well, you keep up your good work. I'm so excited. You know, thinking about a 25-year commitment, it's no small deal. It's kind of like we're in it for the long haul. And I think it's, it's enough of a period of time. If you're young enough, you think, well, I think I might still be around then. And I'm hoping the planet will still be around for me to be able to do it. I admire the, the choice to say, okay, we're going to do something about this as a collective group, because as a collective, uh, you, you really have a power that individuals don't have. And that's kind of what this is all about, isn't it? It's so exciting. It's so exciting to imagine the possibilities of how this will all unfold and evolve over the course of that, that 25 year window. You're absolutely right. Well, we have learned so much today, Gary. Thank you so much for joining us on Society Builders. Well, good luck, Dwayne, and it was great talking. Well, that's it for our show today. Make sure you join us again next time when I interview Rabbi Roly Madelon, who will share with us some truly deeply moving stories about how he and his congregation tackle this whole polarization challenge. It's an interview you won't want to miss. That's next time on 
Society Builders. Society Builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society Builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society Builders. So engage with the local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say, helping people discover a better way with discourse and social action framed by unity. Now the time has come to lift the game and apply the teachings of the greatest name and rise to meet the glory of our destiny. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders.